Well, we're going to dive right into these two verses. It's a shift from last week. We went through all of chapter 11, so we're going to uh, drill down in these two verses today. Um, as you're flipping there, um, I'm just going to dive in. So what Paul does, this is a pretty important piece uh, of the letter to the Romans. Paul opens this section with something that is incredibly critical for our understanding for the rest of Romans. So in verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So if you're looking at that right there, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And this is what Paul does throughout all of his letters. He, he takes time to dive into the deep theological concepts. He establishes some important doctrines of the faith, which is what we've been talking about uh, pretty much since the beginning of this sermon series and what he does from the beginning of this book. And then he calls his hearers to practically respond to those truths which he's presented. This is a pattern inside of Paul's writings and his teaching, and it's especially on display here in Romans. So here, Paul begins appealing to his brothers to live a certain way, and he's going to outline what that ought to look like in the rest of his letter to the Romans. And he's not making this appeal because this is morally right. He's, he's, he's not doing it because he's, he just says that they should do it. It's not because it's just like a good idea to do so or that Paul's coming from a place where he's really wise. Paul is appealing to his brothers and sisters to live a certain way in light of what he has been talking about. And we're not talking about just these preceding verses in chapter 11 immediately before this. This is a very large therefore for Paul. So Paul has just made his case from Romans 1 all the way through 11 chapters and is now saying therefore. So he's saying therefore in light of all of that, everything that I've just talked about, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul is not saying, hey, I'm the leader, so you need to do this and do that and live like this. No, that's not Paul's argument. What, what has been the main argument of Romans so far? Well, if you remember back to our opening sermon, Paul's thesis statement for this whole letter is back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This will be on your screens. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So based on what Paul has been arguing since the beginning of this letter, based on how God's merciful and gracious provision of salvation, which is accomplished by Christ and, and received by faith, this is how we now ought to live. This is so critical for understanding the rest of Romans because it is not an appeal to obey God based on fear, which is how many of us understand obedience today. So we study and get our assignments done on time because we don't want a failing grade. Or maybe we drive and are going down the road and maybe we're going a little bit over the speed limit and then we see the lights turn on in the rearview mirror and we like suddenly put our foot on the brakes. Now, you did not just have a spontaneous desire to be benevolent and care for all the people on the road around you and to drive carefully and cautiously for their good. No, we just don't want a ticket in that moment. That's why we pump the brakes. This is not the obedience that God is calling us to. We've already seen in Romans 8 how we cannot, we are in Christ, we cannot lose our salvation. 
So nothing can separate those of us who have called on the name of the Lord from the love of God. And so this appeal to obey is not a fear-based obedience. It's not based on God potentially changing his mind about us. Remember what we talked about last week in chapter 11. Those whom God chooses, he has not, he will not, and he cannot reject. And so, no, the the appeal to, to walk in obedience and live as God calls us to live is an appeal based on what? Well, look again at verse 1. Look closely. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. Our obedience to God is not based on fear of what God might do. It is an obedience that is based on the mercy that God has already done in our lives. So what Paul is calling the Romans to do is this. I mean, we're trying to understand how are we to respond to all of the incredible mercies that God has had and the beautiful truths about God and the gospel, which are revealed in chapters 1 through 11. Paul says it right here in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So this one verse helps us understand two very basic things. Number one, the way that we respond to God's salvific work in our lives is through worship of God. And number two, that worship of God is a whole body, whole mind, whole life experience. Let me show you what I mean. Um, Paul appeals to us in these two verses, um, and, and it builds in stages, and it begins with this idea of worship. So those who have experienced God's salvation and received God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we respond in worship of God. We don't worship in order to earn salvation, but once we are saved by faith, again, in Christ, the appropriate response to God with our entire lives is to worship God. What does it mean to worship? What is worship? Well, one way to understand worship is communicating worth-ship. So what something is worth. So through our actions, whether that be our words or the things that we do, we declare to the world and even to ourselves the worth of something. In this case, when we worship God, we're using our words, we're using our time, we're using our talents and our treasure to declare that God is supremely worthy That's worship of God. One way we practically see worship in our lives is by looking at how we prioritize the things that are in our lives. So whatever we prioritize highest in our lives tends to be what we worship or what we give our ultimate worth to. Maybe if you're in academia, it's our school experience. So maybe it's our grades, our papers, and our our publications. If you're a parent, it might be your children. Maybe it's our future and our career. Maybe it's an accumulation of wealth and a sense of security. Maybe it's in traveling the world and having grand adventures or just having fun. Maybe it's a spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. Maybe it's your friends, your family, a dog or a cat that you have. Like maybe it's personal fitness or maybe it's personal health or maybe it's video games or maybe it's a TV show. Like I don't know. There are lots of things you can prioritize supremely, supremely in your life. But a good test to figure out what we prioritize in our lives is what do we think about the most? 
What do we talk to other people about the most? What do we spend the most time and money doing? Now, none of these are inherently sinful or bad, at least the ones that I mentioned. Many of them are things that we ought to prioritize. Like, if you're a student, you need to prioritize your schoolwork. If you're a parent, you should prioritize your children and not neglect them. If, if you have a job, you should prioritize that as your calling. So don't get me wrong, prioritization of these things is not bad, but the question is, where does God fit into your list of priorities? Is he low? Is he in the middle somewhere? Is he near the top? When Christians talk about prioritizing their lives, I think it generally looks something like this. So you should see a slide of some priorities. So what you have there is a pretty general. You got God at the top, uh, family and church next, friends, vocation, career, education, and then extracurriculars, hobbies, entertainment, and then maybe a second column with like everything else. Like that's a way that you can uh, think about your priorities. Maybe there's some slight variations for all of you between items three and six, but I think that there's a problem when we look at priorities with a list like this. I don't think this is what Paul has in mind when he's talking about worshiping God. Look again at verse one. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I don't think Paul is talking about making a list of priorities in our lives. Paul says worship of God means presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. This submitting of our whole body, our whole being, everything that we are, including everything that we do, putting all of that on the altar of God. Now, that's a grim, visceral image. The altar of sacrifice would have been a place where dead carcasses of animals would be brought and offered up as a gift to God. And there are two types of offerings that God's people could make. And the first was a sin offering. And the second was a whole burnt offering. So sin offering, whole burnt offering. We know that what Paul is referring to is not the sin offering. And we know this because Christ is the fulfillment of this concept. He is the ultimate sin offering. Jesus' death on the cross was the final sin offering that would ever need to be given. He fully atoned for our, skin, our sins in that sacrifice. So this is not you. Hop on the altar because you are a sinner. You need to sacrifice yourself for yourself. That's not what this is talking about. Jesus fulfills the sin offering. But what Paul is talking about is the whole burnt offering. So this is an offering that would have been made voluntarily as a form of worship of God. Not because God needed animal carcasses, but what it communicated in part was a submission a reliance and a worship of God. It was taking something that was really valuable to, to, to you. It would often be very costly, something that could have brought you personal gain, and then you were gifting it to God. Not because God needs the gift, but God is delighted in the heart behind it, a heart of appreciation for God and adoration of God and worship of God. But Paul isn't telling us to put animals or trinkets on this altar of sacrifice to worship. He's talking about climbing up onto that altar ourselves. After all, that is the greatest thing we value, is it not? It's certainly the most valuable thing that we can offer to give all of ourselves. This is a radical illustration of worship, and it stretches how we understand worshiping God and what that means. Well, what does this mean practically? How does this play out? 
The, the image Paul is painting here, what he's saying is, you know what, God, this is us communicating to God. You know what, God, you are so worthy that instead of just putting 10% of my check as a tithe to you, I'm going to submit my entire bank account to be leveraged for your kingdom, every single cent inside my bank account. That's radical. Instead of giving God our Sunday mornings, saying, God, I'm going to give you my entire week. Do with what you will with every single day of my week, not just three hours on a Sunday morning. Instead of giving you my semester this quarter and dedicating that time to you, God, I'm going to give you my entire career. Like, whatever you're calling me to do, let me leverage that for your glory and for your kingdom. It's saying to God, you are so worthy that I'm going to submit my whole self, everything I am, I am going to crawl up on that altar. I'm going to offer my whole being, everything that I'm capable of doing to you, God, because you are worth it. You are worthy of this worship. That's what Paul is getting at here in this verse. This is the biblical standard of worship and what it looks like as we read the Bible. Not just a few songs, a few songs and prayers that are shot up here and there, but a whole body, a whole life submission to God. Hey kids, how much of God, how much of ourselves should we give to God? All of us, exactly. See, I remember when I was taught this passage, it was pointed out to me that the problem with having a living sacrifice is that it can get up and walk away, right? If you put an animal on the altar, it's probably going to scurry away. And for some of us, there might be plenty of times where we're, we're real gung-ho about Jesus. Like, we're riding that spiritual high, and we skip to the altar, and we hop up on top. And we're like, God, have all of me, right? And then, like, life happens, right? You get a few trials, some temptations, some tribulation, and we come crashing down in discouragement, and we kind of like, like roll off of that altar a little bit, right? And kind of like slip off of it and go back to our lives. Like, this is a normal experience of what it looks like to be a Christian. If, if you've experienced what I'm talking about, you're not an outlier. This is a normal part of what it means to be a Christian walking under the sun, and for most of us, being willing to surrender to Jesus and to hop up on the altar is going to be a struggle. It's going to be a daily struggle. And some days, by the grace and the mercy of God, it's going to be easy. We're going we're to wake up with joy in our hearts. We're going to flip open our Bibles. We're just going to be inclined to live as a sacrifice for God. And other days, we wake up and we want to bolt in the other direction. Like That is the last thing we want to do. There's going to be some days where we just jump into task mode, we do the things that are on our schedule, and we are too busy to even contemplate getting on the altar. Some days we just avoid it altogether, and perhaps these are the days that Satan loves most in our lives. Whatever, whatever we feel on any given day, the standard of worship is given to us in Romans 12. For the Christian, for, 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 for those of us who follow Christ each and every day, we must decide Will we hop on the altar and surrender ourselves to Christ in worship of him or not? This is what Jesus means when he says in Luke 9, 23, he says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Worship of God as Christians means a daily submission of our whole selves, our whole lives on the altar of Christ. I think if we wanted to capture this idea of worship, 
whole body, whole life, every day worship into a priority list, it would look more like something like this. So on, do you see something on there? Okay, on the screen. On the left-hand side, you've got God as like your number one priority and everything else on the right-hand side. Now, this doesn't mean that the things in the second column aren't important, but our devotion to, to the Lord is in a completely different league of its own. And it does impact every single one of our other priorities. So, of course, we have it in our minds, the things that we'd want Paul to address in that second column as they relate to the whole life worship of God. But let's look at where Paul actually takes it, verse 2. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul points to the reality that the world around us is applying a pressure on us in ways that change us. That's what it means to conform. When things are conformed, their structure changes according to how they're being pushed or shaped or molded. Like when you put dough into a bread pan, it's going to take the shape of that pan. Paul says, don't let the world do this to you. We see this conformity in a lot of ways, and it's not always evil. So Chloe and Davey, my two daughters, they pick up a lot of phrases and mannerisms that Caitlin and I have, uh, because in large part, we are the, the, the most significant influence in their lives. Up until this point in their lives, we've been the dominant human interaction that they've had. And so the way that they talk, even the way that they walk, the way that they squeal when they're excited or the way that they snort when they laugh or they roll their eyes sometimes when they're frustrated. In many ways, they have conformed to Caitlin and I by their experience with us. But conformity is not always sweet and innocent. What's understood in Paul's reference to the world that we are not to conform to is that it is, by, in, by its nature, broken and, and very sinful. It is in opposition to God. And so the way that the world tends to conform us is not necessarily for our good or for our sanctification, but it's oftentimes, maybe all of the times, all of the time, it is to our spiritual detriment. So all this to say, Mercy House, that there are pressures of the world that are being applied to us and we are not always as immune to conformity as we think we might be. Now, we might have the impression or the belief that we are unique, we are individualistic, we're extra resilient, and we can think for ourselves, we can make good, rational decisions. And so, we're, we're not going to be conformed to the world just like other sheeple around us are. No, that's, that's not us. Conformity with the world might not always be blatantly sinful, but it still is to the broken patterns of the world, which distort our priorities and impact our decision of whether or not we're going to hop up on that altar each and every day. What are the ways that the world is conforming us? Now, I'm not like a sociologist. I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to venture too deep here, and I don't want to just stand here and preach my own ideas of like how the world is, is, is changing us but Paul already has addressed this. He's addressed what the world has, it, it, uh, looks like by nature all the way back in chapter 1. So if you look at chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Paul says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, and claiming to be wise, they became fools. Paul is saying that the world doesn't honor God. It, it doesn't give thanks to God. These are ways of saying the world does not worship God. There are lots of ways that the world can be conforming us. It can be teaching us that the most important thing in life is ourselves and our own experiences. It can teach us that the most important thing in our lives is our career and making money. It could be conforming us to become completely consumer-driven, thinking that, that everything should be seen through the lens of, hey, what am I getting out of this exchange right now? But at the end of the day, the most significant influence that the world has on us, based on the fact that the world does not worship God. Like, God is not on the world's priority list. And like verse 22 says in chapter 1, the world might claim to be really wise, but it is ultimately foolish. Now, Paul tells us to avoid being conformed by the world because the world is teaching us to have the same relationship with God as it does. So the world knows God, but it's not honoring God. It's not giving thanks to God. It's not worshiping God. The world doesn't care about you getting on the altar of sacrifice each day as a, as a way to worship God. In fact, everything that the world is preaching to us is often to get off of that altar. Brothers and sisters, we, we need to remember that we are not of this world. And Jesus says in his prayer to God in John 17, he says this in verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We're not of this world, if we are Christians, that disregards and dishonors God. We are a new creation in Christ. And if that's the case, hear Paul's words in verse 2. Do not be conformed by the world. Mercy House, this verbiage implies that you have a choice. So in Christ, we are not helplessly floundering like a child who is destined to become a product of their environment. That is not what Paul is getting at. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. This is what he says in chapter 8, verse 37. In Christ, we have been grafted into God's family. So the world is not our parent anymore. God is our parent. So instead of being conformed by the world, what should we do? Verse, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but... Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, what does Paul mean? Well, the main logical distinction that Paul is making here in these verses is between conformity and transformation. So if conformity is what happens to you when you put dough into a bread pan and it takes the shape of that environment, transformation is a change to the physical material composition of that dough into something that is completely different. So if you put dough into a star-shaped pan or a horseshoe-shaped pan or a square bread pan, it may change shape, it may conform to its container, but it doesn't change its form, its essence. It's still bread, just in different shapes. But if you put dough in an oven, and somehow, when the timer goes off and you take it out, and you pull out like a sheet of diamonds, that, my friends, is transformation. It has become something completely different. Now, this verse should give us some peace. 
For those of us who put our faith in Christ and have a relationship with God, what's being communicated is that even though the world is pressuring us, and even though there are things in this world that are trying to shape us and mold us, and even if we do give in, uh, those of us who are in Christ are not having our essence changed. Like, we are not changing back into the world. Our salvation is not at risk. And the work that God has done in our hearts and in our lives is permanent and it is final. And though we may conform in some of our behavior and some of our words and some of our thoughts, like the work of Christ in us is deeper still. So that is a truth that you need to hold on to. But again, this is a call to obey. It is not to not be conformed to the world as if our salvation is at risk or that it means that, our, our, um, that we might lose our salvation if we don't obey. It should not be lived out of fear. But because of God's mercies, that's how this whole section is set up, because he has brought us out of the sinful world, we are called to not be conformed by that world that we've been brought out of, but to be transformed. To use the illustration from chapter 11 from last week, it's the process of that wild olive shoot that's been grafted into a healthy olive plant and being transformed into a healthy, fruitful part of that new tree. So we as Christians are transforming into our identity as children of God. This is what sanctification is. We are becoming who we actually are in Christ. So how do we actively embrace this transformation into who we are in Christ as opposed to conforming to the world? Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So let me nail down the flow of Paul's messaging here. What he's saying is we, have, uh, we who have experienced salvation by faith in Christ respond in whole life worship of God, which requires that we be careful not to conform to the old world that we've been a part of, but, but to worship God, and we embrace the process of transformation in this, which is initiated by the renewing of our minds. Christian transformation, otherwise known as sanctification, is a constant and deliberate renewing of our minds. We're not talking about Eastern meditation's emptying of the mind, and we're not talking about keeping your mind fresh uh, with mental math exercises or engaging our brains in, in mentally challenging activities like chess or, or just bolstering our minds with endless amounts of knowledge and facts. We get a clue to what renewing our minds means and by, by seeing what it produces. Look at the second part of that verse. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the fruit and the product of, re, of a renewed mind, it enables us to test and discern what is the will of God. What is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. Things that are of God and things that are not. In other words, when our minds are being transformed and renewed, we more accurately know how to think and how to feel and what to do as God would want and as God would intend. 
So remember, this is in contrast to conforming to the world, to the world around us, including our own flesh, which is constantly telling us how we ought to think or what, what we ought to feel and what we ought to be doing. So we can think of renewing our minds as the ultimate sobriety, okay? The, where the world and our flesh are inherently sin-bent, destruction-bent, a renewed mind is able to discern what's of the world and what is of sin and what is of brokenness, and that is apart from what is of God, what leads to righteousness, what leads to holiness. People who struggle with discernment, being able to differentiate between the world and what our flesh says and what God is saying, it's because we're not being transformed by the renewal of our minds. Instead, we, whether consciously or inadvertently, we are being conformed by the world around us. So how do we do this? I mean, this sounds very critical. If our minds aren't being renewed, if we're not being transformed and sanctified, then we are navigating through life spiritually drunk and numb. We're stumbling with a compass that's constantly spinning. I think Jesus' prayer from earlier helps us if we read the verse that comes right after what he said. So look back at John 17, starting in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Then verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus' prayer for those of us who are Christians, who, who are being hated by the world because we are not of the world, his prayer is not that we would be zipped up into heaven. His prayer is that we would actually remain and that God would protect us from the evil one and then that we would be sanctified, so spiritually transformed, renewed, how is that done? He says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Being sanctified and renewing our minds is centered around the word of God, around the Bible. As we wrap up this morning, I just want to give you three ways to be renewed by God's word. And it's pretty straightforward. Read it, hear it, do it. Read it, hear it, do it. Number one, we renew our minds by reading God's word. Look at Psalm 1, verses 1 through 4. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So that is like the world. That is the person who is conformed by the world. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The psalmist is not being conformed by the world. Instead, he delights in God's word. And, and the result of this is that he is a fruitful tree. He, he's planted himself by the water, the, the, the living water, which flows from Christ. It doesn't wither. It doesn't grow brittle. It is strong. It is firm through the fiercest droughts and storms that life are going to bring. Mercy House, read God's word. There is no shortcut to this. Read it. 
Study it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. If you want to be a solid tree and not flapping in the wind, if you want to be able to discern the will of God and how to best worship God with all of your life, you need to read the Word. Number two, we renew our minds by hearing the teaching of God's Word. Titus 2 verse 1 says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is an exhortation from Paul to his mentee Titus, an elder at a church. One way that God has ordained the renewal of our minds is through the godly instruction of God's word. So the exhortation here is to regularly attend church, to become a member of a church community. I am so glad that you guys are here this morning. I I truly am. It, It is my job to do what Paul exhorts Timothy to do, to teach you what accords with sound doctrine so that on a Sunday morning you will leave here by the grace of God, through the power of His Holy Spirit, you will leave here with your minds renewed and transformed, spiritually sober as you walk out of the doors, and Lord willing, a little more sanctified than when you walked into this space. That's our hope. That's what we're trying to do here on a Sunday morning. So come regularly to this. And church is not the only time that we can be hearing God's word being taught. You can listen to podcasts. We live in an age where you can pull up a sermon or a teaching from any teacher out in the world at any given time. Like, leverage that. Use that. Come to midweek, hang out with other uh, people from this church, read other godly resources from godly people who have dedicated their entire lives to teaching and instructing others in God's word. I want to encourage you to do that. So read it, hear it. Number three, do it. Do it. We renew our minds by doing God's word. Look at James chapter 1, verse 23 through 25. James says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he, what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. It is possible for you to read God's word, for you to hear God's word being taught, and then to completely miss out on the blessings of both of those. James's illustration is so spot on because it's what's happening when we read God's word and we hear God's word being taught. We do get a glimpse of ourselves. It's an accurate glimpse of ourselves. And it's not always super flattering, but we get to see who we really are. And if we are in Christ, we're reminded of that glorious truth and what that means for, for, for what we ought to think and what we ought to feel and what we ought to do and what to, uh, how to live our lives. But if we see that and then we don't think the way that we ought to, or we don't feel the way that we ought to, or we don't do the things that we're being called to do, it's like getting this chance to see ourselves, to, to look into the mirror and then forgetting it immediately as we walk away. Mercy House, if we're not doing what, call, what God calls us to do in his word, if, if we're not obeying God, and again, this is not an obedience um, th- th- that is salvific. This is in light of his salvation, in light of his mercies. If we're not obeying him, we are deceiving ourselves. It's like buying vegetables and never eating them. 
It's like signing up for a gym membership and, and never using it or going. It's like telling your children that, that you love them, but never hugging them or kissing them or doing anything to demonstrate that love to them. Let us not be a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. The appeal from Paul to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God, as our act of worship to him, it's a response to Christ who gave up his life as the ultimate sacrifice for us. It's his sacrifice that we, we remember each and every Sunday when we take communion. And we remember that Jesus fully and completely and willingly put his entire self literally on the altar of sacrifice so that we could receive grace and forgiveness for our sins. Instead of letting us die in our own sin, God had mercy on us. And he gave all of himself to us. And it's in view of this mercy that we are called to respond. If you're here this morning, whether you are a Christian or you're not, if you're not willing to submit your whole self, your whole life to Christ to worship him, I would encourage you, refrain from taking communion this morning. Stay at your seat during this time. uh, Pray, consider God's word. Because not only is communion an experience of receiving God's grace, it's also a declaration that he is supremely worthy in our lives. And if you're not, a place, not at a place this morning where, where you can confidently say that, then I would encourage you to remain seated. It's okay. Even if you are a Christian, you're not being saved by communion. But it is a gesture toward God. And if your heart's not there, I would encourage you to not receive it. For those of us who are ready, at least in this moment, to hop up on that altar, knowing everything that that means, let's take communion and let's remember that God has ultimately shown his mercy on us and that he is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that um, in your word you show us how to live. God, in your word, we're able to see ourselves as we should. We confess, God, that's not always comfortable. Lord, it's not always flattering. Father, we thank you that you love us enough to not let us remain in our brokenness and our sin, but that you call us to obedience toward being more like you and being made more like you. God, this is only possible through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so I pray, Lord, that as we respond to you in obedience and putting our lives upon the altar and choosing to not be conformed by this world, help us, Lord, to do that, to have the energy and the desire to do that, God. We pray, Lord, that you would be transforming us. God, sometimes we feel like we're just staring at a tree growing and watching it grow, and we're not seeing any progress. And so, Lord, I pray that we would trust that as we do follow you, that you are transforming us, God. Lord, help us this morning to respond to you in worship through communion, God, by receiving your grace, but also declaring through that act that we will, we do put you 
in a league of your own as we view you and worship God. And help us this morning as we sing out songs to you, Lord. And we pray that this would be an acceptable gift to you, God. We pray that you would enjoy and delight in our voices, God. Lord, not because this is what leads to our salvation, but in response to the great mercy that you've had on our lives, God. Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you that you have loved us first. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.